Welcome to The Millionaire's Lawyer, where you'll hear leading professionals share expert advice on how to grow your business and sell it for maximum profitability. If you want to learn lawyer-proven strategies for building and exiting your business, then this is the podcast for you. Your host, J.P. McAvoy, is a business lawyer, college professor, and best-selling author who has been assisting clients start, grow, and sell their businesses for millions of dollars for over 15 years. Will yours be the next? Now here's your host, J.P. McAvoy. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we got a great show for you here today. I was speaking with another old friend going back to college days, actually, John Maharg. Uh, he is uh, he went to university with me and uh, has been a colleague and friend uh, ever since. We begin the show by talking about some of the things that we did almost 20 years ago, if you can imagine, and some of the things he's working on now. He is uh, an entrepreneur in his own right, a real estate developer, and uh, he's got a fintech and digital banking background that uh, he brings and assists uh, the clients that he works with to this day. So we had a lovely chat today, and now here it is with John Maharg. Thrilled to have John Maharg on today. It's been a while, I guess, since we have chatted. How are things in your end of the world, John? Well, good. Yeah, fine, JP. I couldn't be better, actually. I, I enjoy these times of stress and calamity and chaos. Who doesn't? Uh, <laughs> first, I should you know thank your listeners for tuning in, and uh, thank you for having me on the show, JP. I appreciate it. I'm always interested in meeting a community of like-minded individual who are interested in prosperity, wealth creation, community development. As you know, these are things that you and I have worked on for the last uh, two decades, hate to age us. And uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing this next generation step into the more important roles of creating a, what essentially be a new industrial age or technology-based economy. So it is. Very- yeah, it's new times, isn't it? And uh, I like the way that you began there, John. Uh, you, uh, listeners will have just heard from the intro some of the, the background, some of the things that we've done previously. But I wanted to start there because, you know, as you say, we go back, it's 20 plus years now. And to think uh, how we originally uh, met, how we originally started working together, you've been true to your roots. You were true to your roots uh, even back then because you were a builder back then. In fact, uh, I'll explain when we met and I wanted to ask some questions around that. You saw a need in the Ottawa community, specifically for a junior chamber, you saw that there wasn't one. And so you stepped forward to actually create it. And I, always, I was always fascinated by that and by your, uh, I mean, you come from a, from a different community, saw it here. Can you tell us what you saw originally, why you decided to do that even back in those days? Yeah, that's a twofold conversation. It was a partially my introduction of business incubators and accelerators to what mm-hmm. was then Oakry, which was the economic driving force for Ottawa, where I was literally laughed out of the office, uh, mostly because they just had no idea what an incubator or a business accelerator mm-hmm. was at the time. You know, we're talking 1999. And then also a combination of say, uh, wanting to build a team and say, look, we could do this. This is how cities around the world are going to be growing in the future, you know, and since then, uh, you know, the core group of us that co-founded Junior Chamber International in Ottawa was an exemplary group of individuals mm-hmm. who are today, you know, the leaders of industry, of government, of legal, uh, global uh, enterprise and, and trade. I was in awe by the the level of expertise and enthusiasm in that community. And, you know, Canada's national capital really stood up and, and formed a really great community. And 20 years later, you, myself, and, you know, the other fellow members of that, that core group are all playing important roles in Ottawa. And, you know, that's also translating to other 
you know, provinces and cities around the world. That's right. And that's, and that's really the way it works, isn't it? Back then you realized it. Uh, again, I was, I was most impressed because it was your energy that actually uh, originally created that. And as you say, it continues to pay dividends to this day. We're in touch, we're in touch with others, and we continue to build. And that's what you're doing now. Tell the listeners some of the things you're working on now. Again, following that same principle, even established way back then, as you continue to grow and build things in your, in your local community and uh, more broadly across the country. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to share this. I'm, I'm an avid community builder. I really do believe in, in uh, grassroots organizations, grassroots structures. Uh, you know, at a political level, sometimes where you're forming the future of a community, and uh, you know, in the development process, and bringing in a democratic allowance for you know individuals to participate in shaping their environment that they live in. You know, it's not something mm-hmm. that could be transplanted easily, and it's, it's something that needs to be facilitated locally. And and I'm a big champion of that you know my background you know my my roles are varied and I you know includes everything from real estate investment development placing venture finance and startup companies and you know the very early I would say a very early and influencing example for me was uh, some of the post-conflict reconstruction work that uh, Sarah my wife and I did in Mm -hmm. in Bosnia Mm -hmm. Uh, you know we were building incubators and accelerators in the early 2000s and helping to rebuild you know, countries from war zones. And these models were, you know, hugely successful at accelerating economy and community development. I mean, in those scenarios, when we're working in a post-disaster or a post-conflict environment, it's worst case scenario. You have entire traumatically traumatized populations, PTSD runs high, Mm -hmm. uh, you're rebuilding from the ashes. And so there's a challenging market and a challenging economy to work in. Here in Canada, we have every luxury in the world. You know, we're we're one of the leading countries in social democracy and economic development, global wealth. Uh, you know, we're really on the rise. Toronto right now is the largest, fastest growing North American city. It's a financial hub globally. You know, Ottawa, you and I play a smaller role here. But, you know, if if there was a twinning city in Canada with Toronto, you know, I would place it as Ottawa uh, for the simple fact that we reach a, a global population and a global community through our national capital and all of the diplomats and trade emissaries that function there. You know, at a macro level, we're working in post-conflict reconstruction and economic development through PCP Canada, which was a firm that Sarah started 20 years ago when mm-hmm. we were working in places like Bosnia. You know, we brought some of the best practices from Canada to the international, and today we're looking at bringing uh, and even then, when we met, you know, two decades ago, we were looking at bringing some of the best practices and examples we were seeing in the global marketplace to Canada. And you know, that was inspiring for me. And community development is a fun place and space to work in. You know, you're making people's lives better. You're you're 2.0ing people's lifestyles, mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. wealth, uh, you know, and also the the local communities, environments they live in. So, yeah. you know, we do it through real estate. We do it through startups and economic development. We do it through social and cultural programming. So. A lot of the work that Sarah and I do together is very unique. Yeah. So let's talk about that because uh, as you say, impact and you always have had a direct impact on your local community. You do a lot of that through real estate and through your uh, real estate company. Obviously, I've got some, uh, we've worked together uh, on that front of of things as well. You want to describe what you're doing there with uh, Sarah and the company? Yeah. With Armor Development, two things, you know, we want to build communities and specifically now, we're focusing on small and rural communities. You know, these are the places that have been largely forgotten for 50 years across Ontario and then even across Canada. 
and they could really they could really benefit from a financial boost, you know, say from pooled investors in the Toronto area where there's massive amounts of wealth, but like less opportunities uh, to place those funds, uh, and also less opportunity to place smaller amounts of funds. If you're investing and you're working in the Toronto or the GTA region, you know it's a very expensive game to become invested into, and the risk increases when you do that. Here in our small town focus. I'll give you an example. Our town where we live in North Dundas, we had the opportunity to purchase the whole town for $6 million when we first arrived here because values were so depressed. You know, the local factory had shut down and so all the jobs were lost and the whole economy fell out of the community. Not an uncommon uh, story, uh, not an uncommon scenario. And But for us, we saw the opportunity of coming in, helping to raise a group of investors, purchase that plant remodel it, give it a 2.0 as a multi-use facility, allow it to actually create jobs in the community even more than they were there before. And so, you know, that... That's the type of model that can be duplicated. Yeah, let's dig into that even even more so because, I mean, you described it in sort of very broad terms, but it it was obviously, well, I'll get get you to describe it, but it was a plant that was uh, in the food processing industry, I believe it was, is what it was. And and as it transitions to 2.0, it's doing much more, isn't it? Yeah, in this case, uh, you know, it was, a f- it was a former food plant, you know, one of the major brands, Nestle Canada, was their mm-hmm. large, second largest uh, factory and their most productive factory in, in their global uh, chain. And when it shut down, I mean, it was devastating to this community. We came in, you know, within, sh- and uh, another example we have is in Kingston, Ontario as well. We did a similar project there. But you bring in innovations, new products, uh, new companies. Uh, you know, you create the incubator accelerator, you start to do some investor financing and bring in, you know, projects and companies that want to build and are of scale and perhaps, you know, can't necessarily do it from a, you know, 6,000 square foot commercial mm-hmm. uh, rental space. And the model has been successful for us. You know, we work with everybody. We support everybody in the entire startup ecosystem through space use, through business development consulting and through profit growth strategies. And and that's that's something I would love to see franchise around the world. You're absolutely right. It can be franchised. It should be franchised. We're not quite there yet. Maybe that might be an idea for the future. Yeah, because uh, the things that we're discussing here are are certainly not unique to the area, right? It's uh, generally true right across North America and beyond. So some of the solutions that you've been able to uh, bring to your local community and uh, continue to bring to other communities are the types of things that could happen more broadly as well. So as a message, this type of message gets out, it can only be a, a good thing for the future. You, you mentioned startups as well. So we're working with different startups, not at the, at the real estate level, but uh, working with them uh, in a development uh, sense. How are you doing that? Talk to us a little bit about the types of things that you're doing with startups and some of the things that you can describe for people listening that might be of service to them. Yeah, I mean, one of the the biggest, I would say, missing links in the startup ecosystem is, you know, teams of investor relations and profit growth specialists. You know, there's a lot of business development experts, there's a lot of business management experts, business continuity experts. You know, you got the whole digital package and digital team that easily enough to assemble. But finding you know, professional sales teams and sales systems and all of those different supports that help a company become profitable in an accelerated 
fashion is one of the, the missing pieces in the startup ecosystem. And I recognized this, you know, maybe 15 years ago, mm-hmm. and I became more active in that space, you know, and you do a lot of work in that area as mm-hmm, well, JP. Right. And you and I have also looked at broad financing into companies together in the past. However, I really feel like there's not a lot of ex- experts out there that do that specific type of work. And, and that's where I focused. And I'd love to see more activity in that space, because if more money could become available and there's more profitability, these startups uh, will definitely drive a stronger economy for, for North America through this complex transition. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that is the very, that's the engine of growth itself, isn't it? So, so what can a company be doing to make itself investment ready? What are some of the things that you, as you work with a company, uh, you're advising them to do or helping them with to put them in a position to make them the type of project that an investor might be interested in? Yeah, I mean, and there's an ABC one two three formula that's available on Google. I mean, the internet's fantastic for learning how to launch a startup. You know, they all start with a good pitch deck, and typically you'll look at the the different spending and the use of funds uh, spreadsheet on where the funds will be distributed, so the investor has confidence that the money will be uh, allocated to areas that he thinks or she thinks is of of growth and of of strategic importance to the company. My own focus, I love to come into a company when they've already done, they've assembled their entire presentation pitch deck. They've, they've, you know, thrown it around five or six times and it just didn't stick. Mm -hmm. And then I come and I meet with the group and I explain to them, you know, how they need to demonstrate accelerated growth, you know, a real accelerated growth strategy with human people behind that initiative, investment behind that initiative. Uh, you know, it's it's the missing line item in the use of funds of almost just about any pitch deck I've ever seen is a, is a strong sales force, sales team, and sales funding allocation. Right. I come in with that missing piece. In fact, it's almost a template now for me to just insert it to just about any startup. And that helps uh, the investors who's, you know, they really would just want to see their capital come back to them with a little bit of interest. The healthier that ecosystem is and the sooner that happens, the better for everybody, especially the people who are borrowing the money who should take this, uh, this loan, you know, with respect and serious consideration for repayment. So, yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of where I come in and that's the area I like to, uh, I like to focus on. When yeah, I consult. And a lot of times the, uh, you know, the startup or the entrepreneur, they've got the idea, they've been working an idea, but they don't understand some of the other things that uh, need to come together in order to make the company successful and certainly make it investment ready and, and make it exciting to an investor. Obviously you're able to do, able to do part of that as you're structuring deals or working with people What are the types of structures that you see they're most customary? Uh, You mentioned a loan or lending to uh, companies. What's the typical structure you see for the companies you're working with? Yeah, the never typical structure. It's Mm -hmm. always varied. And how the investor wants to place the funds is almost as unique as the amount of uh, variations of, of fundraising available. What we find is that I tend to look from the investor perspective, I think, which gives me a very interesting lens. So I am an investor. I invest in startups, you know, and I've also worked with lawyers and transacted Mm -hmm. uh, funds going into startups and then myself taking my funds back out of startups. The legal forms and the legal processes are really what I tend to focus on the most because, you know, at the lawyers are essentially the the most important aspect of any startup, Mm -hmm. you know, and and anybody will tell you this. You're just saying that because I'm a lawyer as well, right, John? I know know you're just saying that because I'm a lawyer as well, right? (laughs) There's a reason why I surround myself with great lawyers. Mm -hmm. You're one of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I need this resource at my disposal and I need these partnerships and friendships in order for myself and my family to be successful in life. 
and I, why wouldn't I impart the same information on any person who I'm meeting when I'm consulting with them? You know, you, you've got to have a great team of lawyers. You've got to know what the legal frameworks are. And you'll accelerate your business process by having all of the legal understandings in advance because there's a lot of process of back and forth negotiation and then also implementation and then protection and then expansion. And all of those requirements are legally based. You know, I want to see investors protected. I want to see startups protected. I want to see less drama and more success and profits. And, you know, so outside of my ability to, you know, accelerate the growth and profit of a company, I really focus on what the lawyers are going to be looking for me to present to them so they can function and and do their work in a fun and exciting way and expedient. And at the same time, I incorporate all of that back to my startup consulting clients and that helps facilitate the entire process. Yeah, yeah, it really does. It does facilitate, as you say. Uh, I mean, you speak the language. You understand as well what the lawyers are trying to do. A lot of entrepreneurs, frankly, they're afraid to speak to their lawyer. They think it's too expensive to speak to their lawyer. I would suggest it's the exact opposite. I think that's what you just said. It's it's expensive not to talk to your lawyer, right? The cost uh, for not doing so is that, as you say, things will be exposed. uh, They won't be structured properly and then they won't be structured for success. And that's what the, obviously what the lawyers bring to the transaction and advisors such as yourself who have been through this and know what the, an exit looks like or know what the, the long run, what things need to look like in the long run. As you're working with these stars or these accelerators, and you, you keep using the word accelerator as well, which is such a, such a wonderful word because a lot of times there, there is a startup or there's a business in place, but you're talking about taking it to the next level, right? Accelerating things. What are some of the things that you're able to do? Obviously, legal being a, a big part of it. Uh, what are some of the things you're able to do? And money, I guess, is another one to do, as you describe, accelerate a business? Yeah, so I'm pooling financial, pulling the financials together, you know, getting the funding, the appropriate funding into the company is one of the things that I like to focus on early. And I tend to want to, you know, because I'm adding costs and line items to the use of funds, mm-hmm, the, these mm-hmm. additional these additional funds raised uh, will fall on me and I'll, I'll help provide them to the startup client. You know, I, I have enough investor contacts and friends and colleagues who work in the startup space who run angel funds or venture funds that I could I could move funds into projects when needed. And that's hugely helpful. The second thing I tend to focus on is almost a SaaS model that I came across, you know, probably pioneered about 20, uh, maybe 19 years ago, and I call it a virtual franchise. Mm. And this is one of the tools that I can use to accelerate just about any company in the world to a global marketplace very quickly. But I include a number of, uh, you know, I have a secret sauce or a secret recipe to this, and that's mostly in the international taxation. You know, when you're operating companies and virtually, and you're making sales in in you know the U.S., Canada, Australia, France, you have different accounting, taxation, legal requirements. I could pool all that into my virtual franchise model. And if a client was selling, let's say, a, a web-based product or service or a widget here in Ottawa, Canada. I would take that widget slash Ottawa URL and then basically slash France slash Australia slash USA. And I wrap all of those different elements of the business model. It's profit potential. It's I duplicate the entire system, everything from its, its sales and marketing strategy to its online sales platform. And I sell it as a separate franchise. So the the client doesn't have to look at financing his expansion. I offer the expansion as a virtual franchise to investors in a global marketplace who understand how to make money when an opportunity is presented mm-hmm. to them. And these virtual franchises are, are very affordable, you know, and they're cost sharing and they're equity based. So what happens is you can move a lot of these virtual franchises into markets and start selling with 
on-the-ground partners in different places around the world. And I can, we could launch 100 in a month, 1,000 in a month, or 10,000 in a month. It's that easy because it's virtual. It just depends on, on how we market it, how fast we roll it out, and how many investor partners we can solicit in, in markets that we're interested in globally. Right. So there's the growth, there's the acceleration, right? It's just the, the extent or the scope of it is uh, all that needs to be realized or set down. Uh, now, as you described this model and others uh, similar to it that you employ, obviously you make a big use of technology. Can you tell us and describe some of the uses of technology and the way you've been able to leverage that over the years? Yeah, I'm an off-the-shelf alchemist. I really love technology <laughs> that's already packaged up. That's right. You know? I don't want to reinvent the best app for sales. Like I got to use Salesforce. I don't want to reinvent, you know, a great platform like Shopify. I use Shopify. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, you know, try to spend time and energy and resources uh, bringing a product or a solution to a client that's going to keep them in a development research mode and, and consulting spending mode for three years. I look at what's all available in the marketplace and I basically assemble all the top technologies, whether they're mobile apps whether they're online shopping platforms and e-commerce solutions, whether they're, you know, social media, digital funnel platforms, you know, that, uh, that we can create. So we have, we have a combination of the, the website, the social media marketing strategy, which consists of probably, you know, anywhere usually between six and 12 social media platforms. Mm -hmm. Then we also assemble the research and, this, uh, you know, kind of an industry research portal. We use this as a in-gathering intelligence system that we build into the business model. So we stay present. We're monitoring when our client's name is, is published or shared or, or uh, you know, transacted across the web. All that data comes back to us and we can see who's talking about us and, and who's interested in what we're doing. And then we, we solicit those individuals that look like they're a good partner or a good fit or an interest. And, and everything else that's negative, we make sure we manage as well to, to keep the brand's image and, and reputation clean in the marketplace. So yeah. a combination of good, strong management, good sales management, uh, good oversight, and using technology that's the best in class that's available, you know, for dollars a month. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and I know and I've watched you always, I mean, you're always surveying what the latest is uh, and making sure you're employing the latest. And as you say, you're not looking to overspend. Uh, if there's an off the shelf solution, you're certainly going to employ that or be recommending that. You're learning lessons along the way. You always have, you know, your own business has evolved. What are some of the lessons? What are some of the tough lessons uh, that you've learned along the way that inform your own business and perhaps the way that you guide others? So maybe it was maybe one of the losses that you've uh, suffered and prepared to talk about or something that you've learned uh, along the way that uh, maybe hasn't been as successful and uh, is a lesson that you can learn from and help others learn by sharing. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one for anybody to answer because you got to dig into the bones, right? Yes. <laughs> and what entrepreneur who's had a lot of experiences in business and investing does not have a few you know, a few of these examples. Yeah, in fact, if you, if you don't, you'd, you'd suggest that maybe you're not uh, taking enough chances, right? Or you're not, uh, you're not truly an entrepreneur taking the required risk in order to be successful. Yeah. And I also work in an area where I, you know, I'm an inventor, I'm a somewhat of a visionary. And so when I post a project or a concept with all of the profit potentials onto a, onto a slide and then present it to my friends and colleagues, 
you know, it, often they kind of internalize that idea and that concept and they see the potential for it. And uh, of course, I'm, I'm including them and welcoming them to participate and join me in the enterprise, not necessarily introducing that they could take my IP and run with it on their own. Right. That said, you know, that's my example. You know, I've got a, I had a partner client, actually it was a great friend, you know, over to family dinners uh, friend. Mm -hmm. And I regret losing them. Like it was, it's one of the, it's one of those things that kind of breaks your heart. It's a sad story for me because I, I really like this guy, but we were involved in a partnership and, you know, there was opportunities presented and the partnership basically dissolved on a he said, she said. I mean, there was no real hard feelings on my part and the lessons learned for sure. Uh, you know, I exposed myself a little bit. I did lose some money. That's part of the game. But, you know, I exposed myself to a lot of drama, which I tend to want to avoid. I'm right. very cautious about the people who I do business with. And, and so this was a very, you know, unusual circumstance. I probably have maybe one or two of these examples just because I, you know, I'm, I'm a long-term planner. I'm a long-term business person. I'm more interested in, in safe, secure, and boring business. I mean, a lot mm -hmm. of people don't really like to hear that in the sexy tech world. But even behind sexy tech, you've got a lot of professionals who've been in the industry for a long time. And they want to basically just do their jobs, make their money and go home and spend time with their families. And, you know, my example was a learning one. The business model went on quite successfully. Uh, it sold to another group in Ottawa, actually. It became a, uh, it was an incubator that I, a project I had on Bank Street uh, called At The Space, and it then became Colab Space. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, this is a, you know, it was sold to a couple people who took on the project and the ideas of it and turned it into one of Ottawa's, you know, largest incubator accelerators for the Nepean community, which was mm -hmm. fantastic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, obviously, they're not always successes as you participate or as you have participated, you learn from those and try to make the best of it on a, on a go forward. What type of thing motivates you? I mean, you pick yourself up, you do it again. What, what motivates you? What gets you going? What gets your energy up, your, uh, your juices flowing, your desire to succeed? Where does that come from, John? Yeah, a little bit, little bit deeper than uh, maybe just making money. You know, I think I was raised spiritually. I'm a faith-based mm -hmm. person, a mm -hmm. uh, faith-based businessman. So it's a combination of uh, a faith upbringing. I feel like I, I believe in charity. I believe in tithing. But I also believe in, in motivating, you know, basically teaching someone to fish rather than just providing them fish. And so I've dedicated a lot of what I do with energy and passion to making my community a better place, but communities in general. And I do this uh, here in Canada, and then we also do it through our international reconstruction and development company, you know, to places that really require a lot of help and support. So, you know, I think it's, um, I don't know, like uh, world peace. Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> you, know, you, say, it's well, you say that in jest, but uh, world peace, you guys, you and Sarah and I've watched, you want to make every place, every community that you touch a better place. And I think that comes back, you know, from the family business to the family roots as well, because uh, Sarah's father in particular was doing it in his own home community, didn't he? And I think you've learned from that or watched that. Can you speak to that? Uh, talk about some of the lessons that uh, each of you learned growing up and the things that you try to teach your own children? Yeah, sure. I mean, I grew up in investment finance. So my father was a do-gooder by where he placed money and how he invested in communities and in family businesses. And, and so I benefited from, you know, people shaking my hand as a kid. Your dad's such a great guy. He's the greatest guy ever. You know, <laughs> that was my experience growing right, right. up. Bad accent there. That 
pretty much translates uh, to just about everybody who, who might need help. <laughs> uh, and then Doug, uh, as you mentioned, you know, Doug's the man who built Markham, Ontario. That's, uh, you know, he was a real estate development pioneer. You know, he was one of the first developers to be building 500 house subdivisions mm -hmm. at a time. You know, he was one of the first developers to to build social, cultural, and economic drivers in his city. You know, he pioneered 3D projects, 3P projects with the Markham Stovall Hospital. You know, he was not only the founder, the builder, but, you know, we're still, it's still one of our philanthropic uh, investments uh, to make sure the, the city has a great hospital. You know, Doug built the most successful fairgrounds in all of Canada, you know, in a, in a major city, the Markham Stovall Library Project and the Markham Living Museum. These are all great examples of investments that were not necessarily profit motivated. They were community building motivated. And today, I mean, anyone who goes to Markham who has an experience with the people of Markham, Toronto, truly feel that this is an exemplary community. It's one of the most profitable, prosperous communities in all the world. And it's very positive, very trustworthy, and great place to raise a family. And so, I mean, with a vision, right? That was built with vision. That's not by, that's not by coincidence or happenstance. What are some of the things that uh, motivate or precursors to that, right? Uh, because as you, it's almost, I don't want to be cliche, but you know, if you build it the right way, it will become, right? And I think that's, was it, that was the view that he had and was doing. And I think that's the same thing that you're trying to do with Sarah now as well, right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, we get a lot of this from Doug. I call my wife second generation motivation. And, <laughs> and, I, and the reason why that is, is Doug was a huge student of the human potential industry. You know, his story is not uncommon to, you know, young children who were raised in the last depression era. Mm -hmm. Doug built a self-made man, was a carpenter, built his first few houses, and then engineered and financed his way to one of the larger developer investors in Toronto. He never finished elementary school. He mm -hmm. had to go work the farm. He had to work with his brothers and, and help with the family. Real, it's, this is uh, the early immigrant story of Canada, right? And Doug, because he never finished school and, and he became successful very early in real estate and real estate investment, he became a huge student and a huge fan of the human potential industry. He was friends and partners with, still today, with uh, some of the greats and giants in that industry, like Bob Proctor, Mark Victor Hansen, Jack Canfield, you know, the top guys in that industry. You know, I remember Doug uh, gave a lot of them their first start. Uh, he was one of the franchise owners of Century 21 in the GTA for many years, and not just one of the franchises, he owned five different brokerages in, in the GTA market and helped pioneer and expand Century 21 across Canada in, uh, in the early 60s, 70s, and 80s. In that time, he would bring in these human potential speakers and uh, they would basically promote to his sales teams. And he was hitting North American level uh, sales in the GTA for year after year after year for decades. And all of those sales and that positive motivation, you know, was attributed to that human potential uh, dynamic. And he took that to heart in every project he built. He was building his communities for, for a better world and taking in the, the learning from some of the great masters and how to build community success and wealth. And uh, he put that into application in the city of Markham, Toronto. That's right. And I, I love the way you put it, John, the human potential industry, right? The, a lot of those same concepts, principles, uh, continue to be true to this day. You know, people listening to this show will appreciate that. I guess they've been following and listening to some of those principles as we discuss them here. And this is what community leaders and uh, entrepreneurs and uh, builders continue to do and will continue to do into the future. What is the future of business, the future of the things we're describing here look like for you? 
Well, for me, you know, I've got a number of projects. Uh, you know, COVID, I hate to bring it up in this interview because I'm actually getting tired of hearing it <laughs> myself. But, you know, it, it's forced us all to sit down and spend a little more time with our families and uh, reprioritize. And, and, of course, it's had a similar effect on myself. I've got a couple special projects that I haven't worked on for years because I've, I've been solicited by client projects that were so compelling and so interesting that I, hel- I felt like I should become involved with those projects. For myself, I want to continue a focus on community development. You know, we have Armor Development, which was the real estate brand uh, and company. It's a 50-year-old, very successful development company based out of Markham, Toronto, that Sarah inherited from her dad, who's just in a home right now and not functioning in the business anymore. And then we also have Armor Ventures, which is the newest product or brand we're putting into the marketplace, where we're going to start focusing on uh, accelerating venture capital and investment finance into the startup ecosystem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In that, I personally have two companies I'd like to launch. One's called fundsandfoundations.com. And this project is basically based on the fact that so many people are always asking me, how do funds work? How do hedge funds work? How do venture funds work? How do angel funds work? Mm -hmm. You know, and on the same time, when I meet people who have been, let's say a venture capitalist or an investor for a long time, their questions are, what are foundations like? You know, what does a family trust or a family foundation look like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when the family's looking to do some give back? So funds and foundations is interesting for me because I could also partner with you on that and helping people structure these funds and become active investors with their own money, direct investment rather than, you know, investor advisor led investment. So I want to focus a little bit on that. That's a special project. And then and I have the other, you know, the first company I'd like to launch under funds and foundation is the firstpeoplesfund.com. So firstpeoplesfund.com is for uh, indigenous investments across Canada. You know, I'd love to see a stronger focus of Canadians building bridges uh, with our indigenous population. I'd love to see that be done in a social, cultural, and economic fashion. And, you know, I'm part Native myself. I'm Métis. So I love the idea of, uh, of bridging our peoples and, and healing. You know, I, I say healing. Mm-hmm. Again, everybody's talking about healing. And I don't really want to go there. But if we're going to have a positive community and a positive success story as a country, as a community, you know, we need to bridge between ourselves and the first peoples of Canada. And that'll be my first focus with these funds and kind of a passion project upon reflection. What do you want to do when you grow older? Yes. What do you want to do when you grow up? Right. I mean, that's what uh, we, we continue to uh, discuss and we have the good fortune and opportunity that we can bring these exciting initiatives to fruition. And obviously you're always, you're constantly working to do just that. If people are listening to this and uh, gravitating towards anything you're, you're mentioning or they want to learn more, John, what's the best way for them to connect with you to find some of these projects? Yeah, I'd say LinkedIn, you know, is my, probably my first portal of choice for my business networking. Mm-hmm. Big fan of, of the social platform. You know, I think it's exactly what LinkedIn was designed to do. Uh, I've had some successful collaborations and profitable collaborations on LinkedIn. And I've always, uh, I'm always a big supporter of, of that group. Great. So, and so John Maharg, M-E-H-A-R-G on LinkedIn would probably be a key spot to go. And you mentioned Armored Development as well and Armored Ventures. These are obviously all, we'll put all this in the show notes, uh, obviously all well, well represented on the internet. Anybody who Googles John Maharg will see how terrible my online portfolio is. <laughs> <laughs> as I'm a promoter and proponent of social and technology, I'm not necessarily an active or avid user. There you <laughs> but, go. You do it, but you LinkedIn do it for others. Is there. Yeah. Like any teacher, right? They teach others as opposed to do it themselves. So there yeah, you go. If, I, if I only had the time. 
<laughs> that, that's just the way it is. Well, John, wonderful chat today. As we talked about 20 years ago, we were doing this. We've continued to grow. We're continuing to see the benefits of uh, our energies and the people that we work with. It's always been a pleasure working with you and Sarah. So I'm happy that we've been able to do some of those things. And actually, we don't, we haven't mentioned, or maybe we ought to just make mention of the uh, NDBC as well, because that's one local of initiative that we're uh, that we're partnering on right now. And you want to just talk about that as we close? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And also to the listeners and and anybody still listening in and tuning into this show. You know, thank you for taking the time to hear us kibbutz and hopefully we brought some value to you and always the two of us are always open to help support other individuals who share our interests and our passions for community and economic development, both of us with our unique skills and histories. The NDBC project is an interesting concept. JP and I partnered, purchased this commercial real estate property with the intention to turn it into a small town in a rural community incubator accelerator slash investment center Mm -hmm. so you know first there was the incubator then there was the incubator accelerator i think i was one of the earliest people to use the term accelerator and then now we're looking at incubator accelerator investment center and the focus of these small rural towns will be a combination of real estate investment as well as startup and economy and technology company investments in small markets and small towns, like where ours is located in North Dundas, you know, we're looking at a doubling effect in the property valuations of this market. You know, we use geocache to identify market growth and market expansion. Ten years ago, we saw Kempville expand and its property uh, values double. Recently, we saw Russ Prescott Russell on our other side of, of our real estate investments, you know, double. And now it's looking like North Dundas is going to see a revitalization. So we come in early and we help to make infill project investments as well as multifamily investments and and bring some new real estate stock into this town. And what we've been doing is treating a small town almost like we would one of our own subdivisions. But rather than having to build the entire subdivision infrastructure, we come in with pooled investment, some community development tools and strategies, and help 2.0 an entire town. Mm -hmm. And that's ambitious. But we've done it before and we've got the experience to do it. And investors love to see the positive effect that their investments have had on a local community mm-hmm. when they're pooled and strategically placed over time. You know, at three years, five years, and 10 years, you know, we can take a small town and, and completely reinvent it. And all of that is based, all of that work is based out of our, our incubator accelerator investment center, where we have your law firm, for example, JP, mm-hmm. we have an investor relations office supporting mm-hmm. investment finance. You know, we've got accounting, in-house counting, in-house taxation, in-house tech, and as well as all of the real estate professionals and builders required to get all of our projects uh, built and successfully uh, completed. So this is interesting because I am, and we are planning on putting a virtual franchise model on that. So that we can duplicate this in small towns and partner maybe with other uh, large-scale land development families, you know, who are you know often one of three to five largest property portfolio owners in a small town are those families that were the builders and owners many many generations ago, and they're all looking for new investment partners and a new revitalization. So you know, strategic partnerships and alliances that would allow us to franchise this to new communities would see accelerated economic growth and prosperity and success, you know, right across the board. So that's an exciting project for me because I think we can reach tens of thousands of Canadians in small towns and help make a positive lasting effect on their lives. 
That's well said, John. Yes. And as you say, build, you know, building, building for the future, building communities for the future. And there certainly is a lot of potential there and a good reason, you know, and benefit for doing so. So appreciate you very much speaking to that point and to, to us to here today. I like to end these shows with one thing that uh, the listeners can take with them through the rest of the day, the rest of the week. What would you leave listeners with? Some kind of one nugget that you could leave them with to take with them as they carry on with their day. What would you say to them now, John? Have a good playlist. <laughs> Pick <laughs> some it. really good music. You stop listening to the radio and just everywhere you go in your car or wherever you're working in your environment, make sure you're pumping some music and having some fun. You know, I do it every day. I mean, I, I've got these great, you know, these videos I play on YouTube, these song streams, and just helps give me, give me some energy, keep me enthused, you know, shows all the greatest the vacation destinations on the planet. And that that's inspiration. <laughs> keep yourself motivated any way you can. Obviously, good music, good playlists are a good way to be doing that as well. John, thanks so much for joining us here today on The Millionaire's Lawyer. I look forward to the next time. Thank you, JP. Have a nice day. Thanks for listening to The Millionaire's Lawyer. Please subscribe and rate on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. To get your business millionaire assessed and to access the wide variety of resources that we offer in addition to this podcast, go to jpmacavoy.com. That's jpmcavoy.com.